your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The date was in 1996. I was a pastor in Garner, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so one Sunday after church, I, I met a young couple that just got married, just had their honeymoon, and right before, they're in the service this morning. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you know who you are, I was talking to you earlier. I'm going to tell you the three magic words for every husband in marriage. Are you ready? Let's eat out. That's what it was. And so it was after church on Sunday, and I said, Lisa, let's eat out. And we went to Ryan's because we're sophisticated. And we went to Ryan's and to eat. And you know, at, at Ryan's, they used to actually cook food for you before they went to this buffet. And so... Uh, we were going through this uh, queue, the line, the queue, and there was a father and a son standing in front of me with T-shirts on. And I knew they were wrestling T-shirts because there had just been uh, a large WrestleMania event at the Dean Dome in Chapel Hill on the campus of UNK's, uh, UN University of North Carolina's Chapel Hill. And I didn't understand what I was looking at because on the back of these shirts they both had, it was a father and his son, the boy was perhaps 12 or 13. They had T-shirts on, and on the back of the T-shirt it said, Austin 316. Well, I suspected this had something to do with wrestling. And if you don't know the difference between wrestling and wrestling, you are not cultured. But I, was, I, I knew this had something to do probably with Stone Cold Steve Austin. That Sunday night at church, one of my church members, Wendy Reetvelt, who is a... Uh, she's quite a successful woman in, in her own right, but she's also a wrestling aficionado. So I asked her after service, I said, Wendy, today I saw a father and a son wearing T-shirts that said Austin 316. What does that mean? And she blushed a little bit and she told me. So here's what the storyline is as far as wrestling. It seems that Stone Cold Steve Austin in 1996 was in a running feud with a guy named Jake the Snake Roberts. I remember both these guys. So at this point, Jake the Snake Roberts, the wrestler, was claiming to be an evangelist, a preacher of some sort, and he would quote John 3.16 before or after every match. So on June 8, 1996, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Jake the Snake Roberts finally headed out in some WrestleMania match, and Stone Cold, Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin whipped him. And after the match, Stone Cold Steve Austin said, you sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms. Talk about your John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says, I just whipped your rear end. And that's the Baptist preacher edited version. <laughs> and my heart broke. And here's why my heart broke. I'm This daddy... Didn't take his son to church, but he took him to a wrestling match and bought him a T-shirt that he probably paid $25 a peach for each of them that blasphemes the greatest verse in the Bible. Now, some of you say, preacher, wrestling's fake. Okay, I understand that. But blasphemy's not funny. Blasphemy's not fake. John 3.16 is not something to be made the butt of a joke. John 3.16 is the greatest news this world has ever heard that God would send his son to die for us and to think that our culture has become so tawdry that it becomes a, a throwaway line for somebody's wrestling alter ego. God help us. 
John 3.16, I still rem- I actually dream in the King James English. I still remember it in the King James. Do you- can you quote it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, uh, John Phillips called it the great metropolis of Bible truth. All the major themes of the Bible intersect right here. A.T. Robertson, our own Southern Baptist famous Greek scholar of a different era, called it the, the little gospel. He said all the New Testament is crammed together in this one verse. It's the great metropolis. It's the little gospel. And John 3.16 starts right where the Bible starts. For what does it say? For who? For God so loved the world. God. When John uses the word God, he means the God of Mount Sinai. He means the God of so- that brought wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. He means the God that parted the Red Sea. And he means the God that, that uh, calmed the lion's mouths for Daniel. That's the God he means. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Don't ever you ever let someone tell you something different. And when John says God, he means God in all its richness and all its power, not the diminutive sort of placated little God that we create today, this little idol that we have in our mind of some sort of glorified grandfather. He means God. He means God who is omnipresent. That means you can't get away from him. That means God who is omniscient. That means you'll never outsmart him. That means God who is omnipotent. That means you can't outfight him. That means God who is eternal. That means you can't outlive him. God, for God so loved the world, that God that he gave his only begotten son. The great opponent of Christian faith in the last 100 years or 120 years has been methodological naturalism, materialistic naturalism, the view that this universe is merely a closed system of cause and effects and there is no God, there's no power from outside, methodological naturalism. One time there was a man who was somewhat of a skeptic. And he was sitting underneath an oak tree, gazing upon a field of watermelons. And he was thinking to himself that people say there's a God. And people claim this God is smart and he's powerful. God's not smart and powerful. Look at this mighty oak tree that has the tiny acorn. Look at the fragile watermelon vines with a huge watermelon. If God is so smart, if there is some sense of design in this universe, certainly a designer would have attached the large watermelon to the mighty oak and the tiny acorn to the fragile watermelon vine. And he sat there reflecting on how intelligent he was. And about that time, a gust of wind came along. An acorn fell out of the tree and hit him on the head. He thought for a moment and said, Thank God that wasn't a watermelon. <laughs> we think we cannot smoke God. We think that we're more brilliant than God. That, but, but God, sir, God so loved the world that there is a God. And he loves you and he cares about you. There's five five key ideas that come out of this verse about God so loving the world. First of all, it's the greatest love. Notice what it says, for God so what? He what? Loved the world. That is the word agape in Greek. A-G-A-P-E and then you put a long line over the E. Agape. It is a powerful word. In English, we cheat ourselves by using one word for love. I can say that I love the Georgia Bulldogs or I love ice cream. I can say I love Jesus. I can say I love Lisa 
and we, we, cheat, we really cheat ourselves in English. But in Greek, it's much more rich, and there are different words for love. Storge, parental love, eros, uh, kind of erotic love. Phalos, which is brotherly love, but has some overlap with agape. But agape in the New Testament is defined by the cross. It's defined by what Jesus did on the cross and what was demonstrated for us last week and this week by the praise and worship team in the drama department, that Jesus Christ died on a Roman cross and he was buried and he rose on the third day. And that the, the word love is defined by the cross, sacrificial giving, that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Well, we have these messed up ideas of love. What I would point out to you here that in John 3.16, love is traced to its origin in God. This was unheard of in the pagan world. We, we all know John 3.16. We've heard it and we couldn't quote it with me. Even non-believers know John 3.16. But, but in the first century when John penned this and recorded the words of Jesus, this was fantastic news. The pagan gods were capricious. They were to be feared. You didn't know if they were for you or against you, and you couldn't tell what they were going to do. The idea that one of them could love you was beyond comprehension in the pagan world. So when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, someone reading the gospel of John in the first century, one of the first readers, they would have been overcome. What do you mean? God loves me. God cares about me. God's interested in me. God so loved the world. It's agape. And we have all these fuzzy ideas of love, which make it difficult for us to understand love. Uh, we, we do all sorts of things in the name of love, and I think we need to distinguish between L-U-U-V-V-V, love, and how I wish I had the voice of Barry White at this moment to emphasize that, but love, some of the younger people don't know Barry White, they're just deprived, but love, they, if I just love, and it's L-U-U-V-V-V that gets us married, we have the urge to merge, right, and we want to get married, and the love is what drives us there. Some of you have been, i tell you what L-U-U-V-V-V will do for you. When I was 20 years old, I married Miss Lisa. Oh, this beautiful brunette, I just couldn't believe it. And I had a 1970 Super Sport Nova, 354 speed positive traction, Hunter Green. It was awesome. It needed a little work, but it was awesome. And all the women here know, yeah, when you men say little work, that means about $5,000. That's what that means. But I, I, so I had this, and you know what I did because I loved Lisa and I was getting married and I knew that car cost money. You know what I did? I sold my super sport Nova because I was getting married. Help me out, man. If that's not love, I don't know what is. Amen. Yes. Some of you going Pentecostal right now. You're having fond memories of a GTO or something, but it's love. What drives you to do that? Love. And uh, I actually enjoy doing weddings. I really do. Wedding rehearsals, not so much. So I have a rule that if, if you want me to do your wedding, I have several rules, actually. I'm loaded down with them. Almost pharisaical about my wedding policy. But the problem is I, I, have, a, I have one. And one of the rules is if I'm doing your wedding, you've getting a double deal because that means Miss Lisa's going to be your wedding director because I can work with her. Because I've had experiences in the South I, I know we're here in Midwest and Wichita, but in the South, here's what happens. When people get married, they have these people called wedding directors. And these genteel, cultured Southern bells turn into Godzilla. I'm telling you, they, they take over and they come into the church and they start putting tape on the floor and they order people around. You come here and you stand here and you stand here and you stand here and you stand here and don't you do this and don't you do that and don't you. And they, that lady will take me and the groom and stick us outside of a door like that over there, over there. 
and they stick us out there and they say, you stand out here and don't you come in until you hear the music. I got a PhD and they're talking to me. I, all right. And an old boy looks at me. We're standing outside the door at the wedding rehearsal and he says, he looks at me and I look at him and he looks at me and I look at him. And he said, Brother Allen, is this wedding practice? Son, this is marriage practice. And let me just, it doesn't end. What makes you go through all that? Renting a tux and, oh, my registering at Target and wherever. What makes you do that? You are in what? Live. That's what makes you do that. We wouldn't do all this if we weren't in love. And the, 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 the things that we do in love, but we cheapen ourselves. Because when it says, for God so it doesn't mean L-U-U-V-V-V. It's agape. It's not some boy that's got a crush on some girl. It is the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient God. And omniscient, that means he knows everything about you and he loves you. Because there's a lot of people in this room, if we knew everything about each other, we might be saying, it's kind of hard-pressed to love you. I know everything about you. God is omniscient. He knows everything about you. And John 3.16 says, God loves you. For God so loved the world... It is agape. It is deep. It runs red in a river that flows from Calvary's cross of grace. And it's love for God's. It's the greatest love you will ever discover. And for some of you, when you talk about God loving you, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Because when I talked about weddings, some of you stood at an altar at a church much like this. And you made a statement like this. Forsaking all others, I pledge you my love. And you meant it. But then you were married to somebody and you discovered they didn't mean it. And five or 10 or 15 or 20 years later, you discovered them running to the arms of someone else. And all I can tell you is that God's love is a covenant love that he does not break and he is always faithful. People will lie to you. God is not a man that he can lie. And when God says he loves you, he means it. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you. I love you. Written in red. It's the love of God. It's the greatest love you'll ever know. It's the greatest love, but it's also the greatest gift. For God so loved the world, he gave what? His only begotten son. That phrase, only begotten, is translated one and only by the NIV. It stresses uniqueness, uniqueness. Let me put it this way. Uh, we know what words in the Bible mean by the way they're used elsewhere in the Bible. If you're taking notes, write this down. Hebrews eleven seventeen. Write that verse down. Read it on your own this afternoon. Hebrews eleven seventeen. The same word is in Greek. It's monogenes, but the same word, only begotten, is used in Hebrews eleven seventeen to refer to Isaac, who was Abraham's son. Now, some of you who know your Bible know that Isaac was not Abraham's only son. Um, if you know what happened with, do you remember uh, his handmaid Hagar? And Ishmael, do you remember all this? So Isaac, uh, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. But in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says that Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son. What does that mean? He's the son of promise. He's unique. He's the covenant son. And that helps us understand what it means in John 3, 16. Jesus is unique. There's no one else like him. If I were using math terminology, I could say it this way. Jesus is in a set by himself. There's no one else. There's no other name given by whereby you must be saved. 
Uh, he is the only cure, the only antidote for sin. It's God's only begotten son. He is not, God is not the cold and indifferent God that the secularists tell, he is, tell us he is. But he cares and he understands. In the great immensity of the universe, we may wonder how God can care for us compared to the immensity of the size of the universe, galaxies upon galaxies. In that Hubble telescope, they just see galaxies out everywhere, just massive. In the immensity of the universe, the earth seems so, uh, so very tiny. And the philosopher in his scoffing and sardonic style says, well, how could God care if there is a God? But consider this. Imagine a wealthy man who owned an expansive uh, piece of land, thousands of acres. In the center of that piece of land was a fabulous mansion. And the mansion was filled with, with tapestries of the highest skill and painting and artwork of the most intricate ability and all these wonderful things there in his mansion and automobiles and valuable sculptings. And he also had a wife and a little baby. Imagine the man's on a trip and he gets a word and there's a message. Your house has burned down. His first question is not, did the tapestries survive? His first question is not, how are the paintings? His first question is not, how are the sculptures? His first question is, how's the baby? How's the baby? Is the baby okay? Listen, if we as fallen human beings can demonstrate that sort of love, why should it surprise us that the God of the universe loves you and he cares about you? I don't know what you've been through this week. I don't know what news the physician may have given you, your employer may have given you. I don't know what your children may have done. I don't know what you said to each other on the way to church this morning. But here's what I can guarantee you. God loves you right where you're at. It is the love of God. It is the love of God that flows deeper and wider and stronger. Uh, it's the greatest love you'll ever know. But not only is it the greatest love you'll ever know, think about this for one second, if you will, when it says, for God so loved the who? The world. Can I make just a point of application for us for just a second? You understand what that, world, wor that word world means. I've done a detailed uh, lexical study on the use of that word world. It's the word cosmos in, in Greek. I've done a lexical uh, examination of the word. You know what I've discovered the word world means? It means world. It means everyone. That means you. God so loved the world. And that means every race and tribe and tongue. I'm going to make a point of application for us as Baptists. Listen carefully. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, there is no room for racism in a Christian ethic. None whatsoever. When Jesus, how, some of you here, somebody's here this morning, you say, I love Jesus, I've been saved, but you use racial epithets and racial slurs and you put people down because their skin color is different from you. You better go check what happened when you think you got saved. That's a good time to say amen. amen. You better watch out. Listen, Jesus died for the world. And the Bible says that in heaven, every race and tribe and tongue will praise him. We better get used to it. The church today ought to look like a little bit like heaven's going to look like then. I had a wonderful meeting yesterday afternoon with Pastor Geronimo, our Hispanic pastor. And to listen to him tell his story of his conversion and how Jesus Christ came down and changed his family and changed his life. And brothers in Christ, the world looks at this. What we look at, we don't look at, listen, we're Christians. It's not skin color that ties us together. It's the blood of Jesus that ties us together. It's the love of God. He loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the greatest gift, Jesus Christ. 
It's the greatest love. It's the greatest decision. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever what? Believes in him. This is where you come in. Do you notice throughout the Bible the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's response? God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son. That's God's initiative. That whosoever believes in him, that's our response. Whosoever believes, that word believe is, uh, or different versions of it, is used 90 times in the Gospel of John, different ways. It really means to have faith. It uh, involves a transfer of trust. Well, here's the challenge. When I start talking about believing, people say, well, now, wait a minute. Oh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't put my faith unless something, I can trust it and feel it and know it, and I know all about it. Well, that's not true. You put faith in things all the time. Let me ask you this. How many of you, when you're flying on an aircraft out of Kansas City or Wichita or Oklahoma City, when you sit down, how many of you put your call button and say, excuse me, I'd like to know uh, where in the graduating class did our pilot graduate? Where, at what level? Were they first or 99th? You don't know. I mean, you just sit down and you assume that they know what they're doing. Um, boy, when people, I fly on the plane, people say, Branch, why are you worried about the pilot and his or her skill? You know, if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Yeah, but what if it's the pilot's time to go? I mean, I want to know. I, I'm, I'm interested. I'm just curious. I die and get to heaven. Branch, God say, Branch, what are you doing here? Hey, I'm with him. I just, but it, you live by faith all the time. You're following somebody. In 2009, the pop star Keisha, she puts a dollar sign in her name. I tell you what, I have a wife and two daughters. I think every woman ought to have a dollar sign in her name. But nonetheless, Keisha... Keisha released the song TikTok, TikTok, 2009. My last time I looked on Spotify, 147 million people had Keisha's song TikTok downloaded. 147 million people. And here's what she says in the song. That's 147 million people said, I like that song. Here's what she says. Ain't got a care in the world, but got plenty of beer. Ain't got no money in my pocket, but I'm already here. Now the dudes are lining up because they hear we got swagger, but we kick them to the curb unless they look like Mick Jagger. Okay, let me make an observation. Um, one sign you might be drinking too much alcohol is if you think Mick Jagger is the standard of beauty. I mean, you might consider your alcohol consumption at that point. It might be a problem. Um, and people are following that. That's who we're following. You're following somebody. Where are they leading you? I, I want to put my faith and trust in someone who never sinned, who, who never failed, and we follow all sorts of people. We get excited about athletes like Michael Phelps and all those gold medals and the fabulous discipline in the pool and only to be discouraged to discover his use of marijuana. We stand in awe to Barry Bonds hitting hundreds of home runs only to discover that he was using steroids. We are amazed at the skill of a Tiger Woods on the golf course only to be disheartened at his immorality. From the artistic side, we stand in awe at Jackson Pollock's art, at least some people do, um, uh, only to discover he died in a DUI accident. He was driving drunk, and he killed a passenger riding with him. We get excited about politicians, only to discover someone like a Richard Nixon who has lied to the entire nation. And we follow people, and they let us down. The Bible says this about Jesus Christ. He was tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin. He never failed. I want to follow someone who never sinned and who defeated death. 
That's who I want to follow, Jesus Christ. Who, and notice what it says. Whosoever you are invited. We live in a world where it's about exclusion. There's gates on communities, and you have to have a membership to play at certain country clubs. And uh, if you're not in first class, if you didn't pay, the, you have to sit in coach. And so we have a world that separates and divides, but the Bible says whosoever. And that's your name. You write it in there. You're invited. Jesus Christ invites you into a personal relationship. It's the greatest, it's the greatest love for God so loved the world. It's the greatest gift he gave his only begotten son. It's the greatest decision. You have a decision to make today. Will you follow Jesus Christ or not? Will you give your life to Christ? And it's the greatest warning. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting. Whoa, wait a minute. We scoot past a word. Shall not what? That word perish in Greek is the same word that's used in other places in the Bible where Jesus is talking about hell. It's the greatest warning. We don't like to talk about hell much. If we do, it's because someone else is going there. Bonnie Raitt, the singer, said religion is for people who are scared to go to hell. Uh, Mark Twain made a joke about hell. He said, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. William Tecumseh Sherman, the military general and of the Civil War fame said war is hell. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, said hell is other people. They all got it wrong. Hell is hell. And there's no escape. And this is a moral universe. And the God of the universe is a moral God. And he holds us accountable for decisions and choices we make in life. And that's what hell, hell is all about. It's not a tool of mis- manipulation. It is reality. It's a real place where real people really go. It's the greatest warning you'll ever read. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that you may not perish. And that's hell. But it's also the greatest promise. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life. It's the greatest promise. Everlasting life doesn't just start when you die. But it, it, it begins the day that you're saved when you le- receive Jesus Christ. Heaven comes down. You have a new life within you. Heaven changes you. A little bit of heaven comes down and lives within you. God takes out a heart of stone gives us a heart of flesh. I'm looking for something. Because when we talk about heaven and eternal life, it reminds us all of our own finality. That we all have a limited time on this earth. I was reminded of this recently by something I received in the mail. Unsolicited, this came to me. I turned 50 last October. Do you know what came in the mail to me about two weeks ago? AARP. Look at that. I was ticked off. Anybody mad first time you got this? They didn't send one to Lisa, right? You know why they don't send stuff like that to the ladies? Because you always remember, a, a gentleman always remembers a lady's birthday and never remembers her age. Amen? So I, um, I got an AARP card. You know what that's a reminder of? I'm getting old. That there come, there is a time limit on life. Eternal life. And you better make your mind up what you're going to do today with Jesus Christ. Someday this is all coming to you. It's eternal life. Heaven, we have such poor images of heaven, of puffy clouds and halos and harps. But the Bible tells us tantalizingly little, but here's what we know. Jesus is there. Sin is not there. Pain and heartache is not there. And it goes on forever in this fellowship with God and and reigning and ruling with Him. And heaven, so much more than streets of gold, so much more than gates of pearl. Sometimes I feel that those descriptions, God's trying to condescend to our level to describe to us things that are beyond our comprehension about heaven, eternal life. And this life counts. 
these ideas of heaven and hell and the importance of them all came together for me in a very vivid way, in a stark way, on September 11th, 2001. And here's what I remember. We were all in shock that day, those of us who were alive. The, um, the towers falling and, and the pain and the heartache and we're gripped to the TV screen and the Pentagon and those brave people in that air, airplane over the western Pennsylvania and man, last words to his wife, let's roll, and he hangs up a phone. And I have to tell you what I remember is um, these twin towers are burning and the people had climbed to the roof to try to get escape. And do you remember? They were jumping. They were jumping. They had no good options left in front of them. I make no moral judgment on that. They had zero good options left in front of them. They knew there was no way out of this. The night of September 11th, I was watching the news. And uh, one of the local news stations had gone over to Lawrence, Kansas, to KU's campus. And spontaneously, without any organization, students from all over that campus, of that, that tremendous university, had poured out into sort of the center area and uh, on the lawn there's just thousands of students out there, and they're holding candles, and they're weeping, weeping. They had been confronted with evil like they had never really seen in their life, and they didn't know what to do. And I'm about to say something about I heard there, and I want you to listen carefully. I'm not, I'm not critiquing them in a, a harsh way, and I'm not trying to, to be unkind. They, they were grieving, and they didn't know how to grieve, and they were trying to express their hurt. And, and I understand that. But I became disheartened when I listened to the students from KU. This is what disheartened me. They were singing a song. And here's the song they were singing. It was written by John Lennon. At their candlelight visual, they were singing, Imagine. And this is what they were singing. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. And my heart broke. Listen, I teach at a seminary. I don't have any easy answers for 9-11. But because I believe in heaven and because I believe in hell, I, I, I can begin to approach it and answer. What frustrates most of us is in murdering all those people, those men killed themselves, and we didn't get our day in court. That's what we wanted. We wanted those guys flying those planes in court and a gavel to come down saying, you're guilty, and we all wanted to hear it. And what I would tell you is, they may have escaped man's justice, but I promise you they did not escape God's justice. Amen. I believe in hell. And the people that were dying and, and the grief and the pain and the, the flames and the heat and the terror and the, the panic that they must have felt. And here's what I know. I don't have any easy answers, but because I believe in hell, I know those evil men did not escape God's justice. Because I believe in heaven, here's what I believe. Even at the last moment in flames and fear and death, crying out to Christ in faith, one moment in terror, the next minute in the arms of Jesus. It's the greatest verse in the Bible. All these great things come together. A sovereign God. His love for fallen humanity. His gift of His only begotten Son. Our faith, our response, our decision to believe in Him. Heaven and hell and eternity. And it all comes together in just a few words you can read in 15 seconds. How do we pull all this together? I'll try to do it this way. Many of you have heard of the preacher Max Licato and his writings, fabulous writer. You may not know that before he became a pastor in Texas, he was a missionary in Brazil. Fluent in Portuguese. 
He tells a story that I think helps illustrate John 3.16 as clear as anything I've ever heard. There was a, a mother and her daughter living out in the countryside, rural Brazil. A mother named Maria. Her daughter's name was Christina. They didn't have much, but they had love in their home. It was a simple village, dirt floor. It was a clean little house. They're providing. They always had food, but it wasn't much. Some of you grew up like that. But the daughter, Christina, got tired of mom's rules. She got tired of living in this rural village and didn't like her mom's faith in Christ and wanted to go discover the world for herself. And so Christina, one day when she's 16, 17 years old, ups and leaves her village home and goes to Rio. Going to find her way in Rio. Well, a 16, 17-year-old girl going to Rio, jobs are hard to find. And there's not many jobs you can find. But eventually what little money Christina had ran out. But there was one job she could do. And she began selling herself. Night after night, day after day, stranger after stranger. Meanwhile, back at the village, her mother Maria is praying for her, praying for God to bring her back. And she decides to go to Rio to look for her daughter. She goes to the little bus station in their village. And do you remember they used to have in the stores these little uh, machines that would make black and white photographs? You'd sit in a little booth and make a photograph, 10, 10 little black and white photographs. Do any of you remember those? They had one of those there at the bus station. So she sat down there at the bus station, took about 20 of those little photographs of herself and took them with her to Rio. And she goes up and down the streets of Rio, that massive teeming mass of people and just street upon street and street. And she's going to every den of iniquity she can find looking for a daughter doesn't find her she goes back home meanwhile back in Rio one night Christina is coming down the stairs she sold herself cheap for another night and she's walking down the stairs of a cheap motel as she's walking down the stairs of that motel she looks at a little bulletin board over on the left and she sees a photograph she recognizes and she looks closer and closer it's her mother there's a photograph of her mother on the bulletin board in this cheap, tacky motel. And she pulls the photograph off, and on the back, her mother had written this, wherever you are, whatever you have become, come home. Wherever you are, whatever you've become, come home. And she did, and there was sweet reconciliation and healing and forgiveness. Listen carefully. God has placed a postcard on the side of the universe and on the front is a cross and a man with a crown of thorns and pierced hands and pierced feet and a spear in his side and then there's an empty tomb on the front and on the back side you turn it around and God says to you wherever you are whatever you become whatever you've done come home come home come home Jesus Christ loves you and today he invites you to come home to the arms of the father that loves you Every, I want you to listen closely. Listen closely. We're going to do the invitation a little differently today. If you've been to Baptist churches, you know we like to invite people to the front. I'm going to do something different. I did this a couple of weeks ago. We're going to do it again. At the start of the service, I ask you to fill out this card. Now listen carefully. I want you to look on inside your bulletin on the response sheet. There is a, um, there's a prayer. I want you to look at this with me. You say, well, how do I come home to Jesus? How do I respond to God's offer? Emmanuel Baptist has this laid out for you. Notice what it says. There's a prayer. And I want every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. I'm going to ask Lisa to come. And she's going to start playing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Listen carefully. Listen carefully what I'm about to read to you. 
asking no one to be leaving now. This is the most important time of the service. Decisions are being made where eternity is at stake. Listen carefully. You say, Brother Allen, how do I respond to Christ's offer? Listen, it's like this. Here's what our church says. Lord Jesus Christ, you pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. I believe that you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sin against God. I confess that you were raised from the dead so that I might live in victory over my sin. By faith, I now turn from my sin, from my life of sin, and trust you as my personal Savior. Commit to making you the authority over the rest of my life. From this moment forward, I will take up my cross, die to myself, committing to follow you wherever you lead, regardless of the cost. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, listen, right now, some of you, you're praying right now and you're listening to what's being said, and in your heart, you know you need to come home to Christ. You know that you have wandered far away and your life is full of brokenness and sin. And I'm not asking you to be baptized. I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm not asking you to to do any of those things. What I'm asking is you to give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To believe on Him and Him alone for eternal life. Trusting His grace. And if that's what you want to do right now with this moment of invitation while people around you are praying. Some of you have already been saved. Pray for those around you. Pray for the person to your right and your left, the front and behind you. Pray for them. And someone right now, you're you're saying, I want to pray that in my heart. Well, do it right now. Call out to Christ. Father, I pray for lost people to be saved. I pray they would know Jesus Christ's forgiveness. We ask it in the name of Jesus.